It's Dear Instructional Designer, Episode 31. Hey everybody and welcome back to Dear Instructional Designer, the show about the instructional design journey. I'm your host, Kristen Anthony. It's Season 2 of Dear ID, a season of episodes on the tools, tech, and solutions that IDs use all across the spectrum. Today, I sit down with Hadia Nuruddin, an instructional design and training veteran who now owns her own consultancy. I was interested in having Hadia on the show when I heard about her new venture, Fresh Eye Reviews, where she'll be focusing on simplifying the quality control process for organizations. I know that course review time was always one of those times I hated in, I have to say, the one job I've had that actually had a review process. I was very grateful to get all of the feedback and spreadsheets because it gave me time to rage and curse about all these people who were focused on pointing out my typos or comma misuse instead of focusing on the bigger stuff like whether or not the content made sense or whether or not any series of actions broke the course. Then, of course, I was able to calm down and actually start fixing these details. But again, it was one job out of several now that actually had a review process. And when I didn't have it anymore, I have to say I found that I missed it because I felt like it was important as much as I hated it. And Hadia makes a great case for quality control as being a very important and non-negotiable part of our solution building process. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Hadia. Hadia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So before we dig in, could you tell us a little bit about your journey so far in instructional design? Okay. So I condensed this down because it's a long journey to even get to instructional design. Um, but I'll start by saying this. So I got a bachelor's degree in English and I graduated right in the first Gulf War. It was a recession, bad combination of trying to start a career as a young professional. So I was in what I call retail purgatory for a long time. Every retail <laughs> job I could get, I got. Um, and then one fateful day I applied for, it must have just been a customer service job. But when I got there, they said, we are going to interview you for technical support, which I thought was odd because I <laughs> had never supported a computer before in my life. The most exposure I had was working at Kinko's midnight shift and rescuing people's floppy disk from being shredded from computers. But mm. mostly I was just trying to stay alive and not be plummeted by this um, academic who lost 300 pages of work. But that was the most I ever did. But they said, hey, we're all, we all have English degrees and we can learn it. <laughs> you can learn it. I said, okay. So I start in this, start towards this journey of te computer technical support with no idea of how to do that. But after being cursed out a lot by different clients, I decided <laughs> I was going to learn computers because I think the original gist of the job was that we were just supposed to support their software. So it was, how do you do this? How do you do that? 
the problem was that many times people would install our software and their computer wouldn't boot anymore. And or we came up with a patch, but the patch meant we had to edit system files in their computer and we had to walk them through it. And these weren't the days where you could remote into someone's computer. You had to walk them through it. So in a way, I think that's where the teaching bug hit me a little bit because I was teaching. Yeah, you know, like there was there was no other way to communicate what we needed to communicate. In the meantime, as I'm le- teaching myself about computers, I said, you know what, I'm going to start training other people on the team on how to do this and what I've learned. And thinking back, I realized that no one actually asked me to do that. I just started doing it, and so I started creating courses and all of that, just in Windows three one or what what have you. So I rode the tech boom out for a little while in various technical support jobs. And I got burned out. You know, it's the bad news business. No Mm. one stops you in the hallway to tell you how great their computer is working. It was always bad news. And if they do, it's a trap. It's always a trick. (laughs) Um, So I said, you know, I'm going to go into training. And in my mind, I was already a trainer. I mean, how hard can it be? All you do is tell people what to do, right? So I started applying for technical training jobs and I finally got an interview and I remember the manager asked me, have you ever heard of instructional design? And I was pretty floored by that because I had never heard of that concept in my life. And I didn't take into account that I was really switching careers so that I probably wouldn't have known it, but I was sort of cocky, I guess, and thought, how dare you say two words together and me not know what they are? I'm going to, how dare you? So I was like, oh, wow. Um, No, I've never heard of that. And she said, well, if you're going to have a career in training, you should learn what instructional design is. So I was kind of bummed by that. And I thought, okay, well, this is over. But then I got called for a second interview. And um, I said, okay, I'm going to learn instructional design in two weeks. Um, So... I found out about this organization called Langevin, which you may have heard of. They have all this basic training for people and some advanced training too. And I found this pamphlet for training 101. So I went to my tech support manager and said, and talked her into, I don't know how I did it. I just talked her into letting me go to this class and for her to pay for it. So in between both interviews, I go to this class. Hmm. So I'm in this class and I'm still not hearing the words instructional design put together. So at lunch, as an introvert is wont to do, I was eating by myself and I, the, the trainer came in and said, may I join you? I said, yeah. She said, how's everything going? I said, well, I have an interview on how to be an, on being an instructional designer and I don't know what that means. Can you tell me what it means? So basically what happened at that point was a movie montage. You know, she's telling me all of these things, Addie and adult learning principles, instructional design, just teaching me of doing a brain dump of everything there was about (laughs) instructional design. So I'm writing this all down. So I go to my second interview and I'm just proclaiming all of these words, like, you know, just... You know, I think it was the great Malcolm Knowles who once said, you know, just no idea what they really (laughs) meant. But but I was convinced that I could do the job and I was passionate about it and they hired me. So that essentially is how I became an instructional designer. And I just fell in love with really creating materials and creating books and, and writing things and creating sort of worlds around the training that I created. And so that's why I fell in love with the profession and just kept going. (laughs) 
Awesome. Awesome. You know, uh, what's interesting is that uh, I remember distinctly when I was in higher ed, I read this one article where it was talking about spaced practice. But what they said was, mm-hmm. you know, when when you have a test and all you're trying to do is pass the test, then cramming is not actually illogical. Right. So that like that's exactly <laughs> what you did. It's like, yeah, I crammed. And you know what? I passed. And that's that's really yeah. all that mattered right then. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a there's a little epilogue to that story. Um, about a year later, the people who met who um, interviewed me was the manager and her one of her senior training people. And I, she sort of reflected on that interview and said, you know, I asked Matt, who was the most qualified for the job? And he said, oh, well, this other person, hands down. And she said, well, who do you want to work with? And he said, Hadia. So, <laughs> so in many ways. They saw right through me, but I think it was, <laughs> right. I think it was the joy that I had and the passion of, you know, just reading. Basically, I just was reading an instructional design dictionary with no definitions, you know, basically. <laughs> but they were comfortable with that and um, it all went well. The rest is history. Awesome. Amazing. So, Hadia, let's talk about general solution building. What would you say is in your toolbox for designing and developing learning experiences? Well, I would say first and foremost is imagination. (laughs) Imagination and creativity are the two things that I think I rely on the most, frankly, and Mm -hmm. everything else is sort of in support of those two things. I am basically, you know, team storyline too. You know, that is the software of choice that I use and everything else sort of supports that. You know, I also use PowerPoint mostly mm-hmm. for my graphic work. It's just the tool that I sort of grew up on and know so well and can do lots of amazing things with. I do um, know Photoshop and Illustrator, but um, I discovered something, especially when I went out on my own, is basically the reason why I can eat and I can pay my mortgage is because organizations or individuals in those organizations said, you know what? let's get an expert to do this. Why are we trying to do all of these things? And I said, you know what? My favorite tool is using other people who are experts Mm -hmm. in these fields. Mm -hmm. So why am I trying to be this amazing voiceover actress? Why am I trying to be (laughs) everything, a video editor, a videographer? I'm going to pay people to do what people do. Internal, that's not that easy Mm -hmm. because in their mind, well, it's free if you do it. Well, nothing's free. Yeah, because now it's time that's devoted to this because I don't technically know how to master this in an efficient way. Mm-hmm. But I do know instructional design and I do know um, e-learning development. So that's what I focus on. So I would say, you know, primarily Storyline 2, but PowerPoint and just a sprinkling of Adobe products. Awesome. Well, I, you know, I want to dig into that a little bit because I know that that, that has been a theme for a lot of IDs that I've talked to on the show is this idea that of sort of, um, I guess you, you might say, scope creep of, it, of the instructional design role, right? Like we're, we are all the things in so many places. Like what, how do you deal with that? How would you advise us to deal with that? You know, it's interesting. I mean, sometimes late at night when I'm working on something and I'm nudging a circle from left to right. And I just go, how did I get here? Like, (laughs) why is this happening? You know, and all I wanted to do was teach and train. I don't know how I got here. And honestly, 
no manager when I was internal and no client as external ever came up to me and said, you know, Hadia, this blue is really washed out. Can you perk it? That's me doing that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's me putting myself in that role of I can do it. I can I can do all of these things when I really need to start boundaries, which I have and drawing the boundaries and say, that is not in my wheelhouse. Let's find someone who can really do this so I can move on to the things that are in my wheelhouse and not spending all night working with these. So I think a big part of it is we are also naturally curious people as instructional designers, and we want to be a part of these these different communities. We want to learn all these different tools, but I think there's a price that we're paying for that. And so many times when I'm designing something, it does pop into my mind, okay, but how is this going to look as I'm developing? Mm-hmm. And I wish it didn't, you know, because really the tool shouldn't be driving what I'm designing. It should be vice versa, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the price that I'm focused so much on. How is this really going to look when it's executed? And can this be done? And not necessarily, is this the best way to teach this topic? So I have to stay focused on that. So I think we need to draw boundaries for ourselves. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. So one of the things that I invited you on the show to talk about is uh, quality assurance and, and the quality control process that you and your organization go through. And I feel like this is one of those parts of development that everyone hates. Like, I know I hate it, right? But this review can be so important in making sure that you create really quality products. And every organization I've been in does it differently. And, and honestly, some of them don't even do it at all. So walk me through your take on the Q&A and review process for instructional design and development work. Well, quality control has been something near and dear to my heart ever since I was in retail purgatory and working at Kinko's for two years after college. And you know, I worked midnight shift and we had this big machine called the Xerox 5090. And most people's experience with Kinko's is just copy this resume, copy, but you don't know about the the underside of Kinko's. And that was that people had big volumes of books with tabs and colored paper and all of this stuff that all needed to be programmed in the machine. And you would have to count the pages to get it right. And sometimes for a 20 book run, I would make 21 prototypes that I had to throw in the garbage and hide because I didn't want the first shift to find Mm -hmm. that I had actually went through all of these books. So quality control has always been at the forefront of my mind because I know one false move can cause a lot of trouble in productivity. I think that also for quality control, it sort of leads back to what we just talked about, this idea that, so I've just written a book, basically. I mean, a whole workbook that's about the length of a book. I'm creating software, which I think e-learning development is creating software mm-hmm. to a certain extent. We have to think like a program. And yet there's this assumption that I'm doing it all perfectly, that there's, there, there is no one standing between me and the public. You know, mm-hmm. Stephen King doesn't just print off books on his printer and then go to separate Walmarts and put them on the shelf. I mean, there are whole bodies of industry standing between the creator and the people who consume that. And yet in this industry, for some reason, um, or at least 
organizations who do have that function. But for many of us, there is no function there. And unfortunately, our learners, our SMEs, our sponsors become our beta testers. Mm -hmm. They become, you know, the guinea pigs that have to sit through all of this. And it's just not, it's not efficient. It's not fair. And I think it's not fair necessarily to assume that we are going to be, after being drowned in all these modules of words and clicks, that we are going to just nail it with no training on how to really make sure that those those processes work. Mm -hmm. So I'm a firm believer of acknowledging, first of all, that the quality control and assurance needs to occur. Uh, First of all, and another thing too, that a lot of people don't recognize that quality control and assurance are not mutually exclusive. They're not not the same thing. Mm. So quality control is, you know, checking on something that's already been created. Quality assurance is making sure those errors don't happen in the first place. Oh, okay. Yeah. So for, you know, quality control after the fact, which is, you know, probably the best we, a lot of us can do at that point. You know, I'm a firm believer in making sure that's part of your schedule. And I don't think that a lot of us think about that. I think that that we should pay a lot more attention to the processes and build them in somehow. Yeah. I mean, so what, in in your experience, like if, if you have a team that really values working iteratively or or in an agile way and is really just sort of top down not interested in you know having barriers to your shipping mm-hmm. so to speak shipping the module shipping the content like how do you work in quality control as a process on a team like that well, first of all, I do think there's different types of quality control and different types of reviews, and we lump them all together. Usually, you know, we have one person who's looking for content, looking for errors, looking for testing the module and just going through the module. And that can get really convoluted. And that's why you have to keep going through it over and over again. I think that there there should be different types of reviews separated out. Let the the subject matter experts focus on that. Now, of course, they won't. Of course, they will give you <laughs> your their opinion on this, that, and the other, and really focus on that. But I think if you make sure that if you work with them, you can make sure that hey, you can say that. But really, the the primary thing that we're going to focus on is content with you. Mm-hmm. And then if you're able to have another team that focuses on just what what class is there, because I in my mind the subject matter experts focus on the class that's not there. You know, they focus on what what's missing. What can we do to make this better? Quality control focuses on the course that is there. Mm. So we're not going to tell you to, you know, take this component and move it to the front. Take the, and, you know, that's not, you know, that's not really the role. The role is what, what course is, what is actually there and really just focus on that. Focus on what doesn't work. Focus on, how something could be better just from the learner perspective. Now, how to slip all of this in is the question. You know, how do you make time to do this? Again, it goes back to setting those boundaries. And first of all, acknowledging that this is part of our job. This is part of the gig, Mm -hmm. you know, that it's not an extra, it's not an add-on, and it's not just slipped on review process. It has to be a committed part to what you are working on. So you need to schedule it in. Mm -hmm. I do believe that we can train 
our organizations to respect that by just putting it in there. I think so many times, at least I know when I was internal, there is a fear a little bit that they say training takes too long. Everything takes too long. Well, pay now or pay later. You know, write it on the on the project plan and schedule it because it's going to happen anyway. It's not like if you don't schedule it, it's not going to happen. There's still going to be errors. Mm. At least think about, hey, this is going to happen whether we want to see it on paper or you don't want to see it on paper. So let's make sure that ahead of time we know what to do about it. So that's the approach that I would take and really sort of saying we are the professionals in this and we've been through this a million times. So getting that sort of sort of getting that that respect for valuing our time and valuing their time and making sure that it all is laid out in the beginning. Excellent. Okay, so you you advocate for just make it part of the project plan. Like just yes, just call it out. Yeah, call it out because you know my empathy and this and the pain the people who endure the pain of this is myself, of course, but primarily it is the subject matter experts and the clients who really shouldn't have to go through this. Mm-hmm. And I wish I was perfect. I wish that. I didn't type faster than I thought sometimes. <laughs> and, you know, that I made sure my articles were in there and I made sure I wish, but that's just not the way the world works. Mm-hmm. So I'm always advocating for, is there a way that you can get a separate body in there to focus on those things where the um, clients can focus on, can focus on the, the content and just train it that train them that way and i think it it works so as as a as a business owner now so i mean you know you gave excellent advice for internal people but as as a business owner sort of how how do you sell this as as a service well i think it's it's interesting that people feel like they necessarily need to separate it out you know, if my, de- it's part of my development process. Mm-hmm. So if I'm excluding it and tell you, telling you that development is going to take four weeks, then why don't I tell you that development takes five weeks? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's part of it. And yeah. I think if, when we separate it out, you know, that's when it gets kind of murky. But if you include it as part of your full pro- full process, then it's easier to sell because it is part of it. You know, at the end of development, you should have a module and you're not going to have a module if we're still beta testing, if we're right. still, we're still in review. So it's, it's all part of it. So um, let, let me ask you this, like my first instructional design job, and this was the place that I feel like did this whole process the best. They had an alpha period, an alpha testing period, which was all internal, and then they had a beta testing period. What what do you advocate for? Do you do you use sort of those those two periods or you just, you know, create it and then you look at it and then send it out to sort of a, a beta tester? Yeah. So I know with the the whole iteration in Agile, some of that is sort of changing a little bit. But the yeah, the traditional way that I've done it has been alpha review. And alpha review either has no audio or has sort of robotic audio. Some things may not be finished, but that's sort of the first content review to make sure that I'm on the right track. Well, actually, the first one should happen at the storyboard. Um, Ideally, it's Mm -hmm. set. But, you know, that's where you get into problems when you want to change things from the storyboard 
and in the actual module. And that's, I think, at least to a lot of issues. And then we go to the, the beta version that has the audio in it, and then we run. But I think part of the issue is, is timing. But I think the biggest issue is what we consider to be a review. You know, I call the, I say that there's a couple of paths. The first path is the learner path. The learner path is the path of least resistance. So if I were to ask a person who's, you know, random person sitting around, an admin or project manager, look through this course, nine times out of 10, they're just going to take the course, right, right? right? So they're going to walk through the course and they're going to find the problems that a learner may find. And that's valid and that's wonderful, but that's not testing. Testing a course is trying to break the thing. It's it's going through and seeing what all the all the answers and all the possibilities and all the animations. And, you know, there's in storyline, there's that bit about going back to a slide and whether or not you have it um, resetting to the initial state or resuming. Mm -hmm. And many times people go back to a slide and they don't know that it's they don't know the ins and outs. All they know is that when they try to replay nothing happens. So I want people to go, I want people to test a module like that. Mm -hmm. I want them to look at the slide, go back and go forward and port um, animations to see what happens. Click early, just be a rebel, you know, just, just be that person that we think doesn't really exist, but does (laughs) exist. And then you will find out about it, who will go through the course in a way that you just can't imagine is possible. Now, we don't want to waste people's time by doing, you know, um, I clicked three times on a slide and Bloody Mary came up. It's like, what? I mean, why are you doing that? (laughs) (laughs) So um, we don't want to waste people's time with that. But I think that there are some real things that people can do that you just imagine that they won't do and that are are not sort of... uh, repeatable always. So um, trying to get people to actually test it, I think is important. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one thing about, there's some tools out there. I know there's Zipboard, Review My E-Learning, there's Review Link. There are some tools. There was another tool a long time ago. And I, I, again, I'm, I'm sign up Sally. So if I, if there's something that seems cool, I'm going to sign up and try and make other people use it. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to use those tools in a collaborative way and they work, they work really well. But what I found out was that my problem is not a technology problem. It's a people problem. Mm-hmm. It's that I don't have the resources of people who are going to sit there and look at every answer and go back and forth and um, abandon at interactions and go back into interactions to see what will see what will happen. Mm-hmm. I will, and they're not going to do that. So those tools are great for collaboration, but they're not they're not good if people don't use them. Mm-hmm. And good luck giving a, a subject matter expert another username and password to remember. You know, in the beginning they'll go, "Oh, this is fine." And trust me, by the third review, they'll be like, I couldn't find it to your fancy system. They they love using the word fancy (laughs) to your fancy system. So I just put it all in email, you know. So it, you know, after a while, people get frustrated, I think, with some of those systems. But they work really well if you if you use them and you have the people to use them. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Excellent point. So what what kind of things do 
like what what kind of instructions do you give people as far as a review like do you just say get get it back to me however do you have a, a spreadsheet we always had a spreadsheet like yeah what what do you do yeah well one of the the great benefits of working external is you get to see how everyone else is doing it too mm-hmm. you know initially you know, you, I think you just get constantly burned and then you learn and you develop a process that way. You know, you move from get it to me when you have a chance to fill out this sheet exactly like this <laughs> at 12 o'clock. At noon. Because in between those two, you've been burned so many times, you know. So I'm to the point where I have a sheet and I ask them to fill it out mm-hmm. and tell me what's happening from slide to slide to slide. You know, the beauty and the magic of something like Storyline is that things seem can seem very seamless and very fluid. The problem is it becomes difficult to say on slide 25, this thing is happening right, because right, right. you don't necessarily know what slide that is. Mm-hmm. So those are usually the instructions I give. So they're starting a service that is is attempting to be sort of be that third party that works with different companies and works in that review space where you send us your stuff and we're able to go through and review it. And in that context, we're sort of developing a language around review mm-hmm. in that when we structure the review, we say, you know, put the verb that you want the the actual developer to take first. Then you tell them, what is the current state? Then you tell them what you wanted to change it to. And we're developing a whole language around how to describe a slide, how to describe an, an animation so that when the client gets this feedback back at it and just go down the list and see, oh, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do that in a very clear way, mm. as opposed to what a lot of clients do or or even designers do, give you this exposition up front. And then you're like, what exactly am I doing? What exactly am I changing? But this service allows you to sort of just get that clean quality control feedback on how the course is actually functioning and how that individual person is experiencing it, which is something that I feel like is really hard to do when you just send it to SMEs, when you just send it to your internal group, who are, by the way, developing their own 50 courses. And they're going to ask you one day, one day they will ask a favor of you (laughs) to review all of their courses. Mm -hmm. And um, it just becomes, you know, it just becomes a bit much. That's yeah, I think that's really cool. How is that? How has that been going? Have you been getting a lot of traction? Well, we actually just started taking in clients in September. Okay. And things where actual quality control and assurance, like for Microsoft or something, you know, they have an actual they know what to expect, mm-hmm. right? They know that when you click on B, it should text, it should change whatever's highlighted to bold. Mm-hmm. So they know what to expect. This becomes a challenge for us because we don't know. You can do anything with your courses. Mm-hmm. Again, part of the magic and beauty of these tools is that you can do anything and you set the rules. So we're training people and actually the people that we're looking to bring on as sort of contractors in this are people out there who are getting, there's lots of people who are getting masters in instructional design who have no experience in instructional design Mm -hmm. and are looking for ways to get their feet wet and being able to get exposure to all of these different modules, not just e-learning, but we also do print work as well, Mm -hmm. workbooks and PowerPoints and all that. So getting exposure to all these different types helps them, first of all, 
see these examples of what can be done, but also start thinking about quality first. And then you, as the person who is the, the client, can just get no one has any skin in the game. No one has any agenda. Every Their only goal is to review the course that's there and just say, hey, when I clicked on this, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. I expected something to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, to you, you may say, well, that's fine because that's just the way it is. That's fine. But at least you know that that may come up. And mm-hmm. our goal ultimately is to reduce the number of cycles you need to go through. Mm-hmm. You know, I call them the period police out there who are <laughs> who are constantly policing where your periods are and how many periods there are. Yeah, and, yes. <laughs> and the extra space police is always on high alert and wants you to know that there's a, there's a space which usually, as you may know, articulate storyline will insert on its own sometimes depending on the font that you use. So, you know, anything that we can do that can reduce the amount of reviews that you need to go through, we think is, is value add. Mm. This is not something that I would expect someone to do, first of all, for every learning experience. Mm-hmm. Every experience is not that robust. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't expect people to do it several times for one course. But I know for myself, I get several, I I will get multi-module projects. And I would love to be able to finish module one and then send that on for someone else to review why I start module two. Mm -hmm. Because it just becomes, when you get, I call it a design collision with all these different things coming together, it just becomes a lot for the designer slash developer to, to really handle. And that's when you begin to miss a lot of just the little simple things that you've read a million times and you're like, that's just can't be true that that's not there. It was there. I promise. (laughs) And it just isn't, you know, so it's, you know, so I'm hoping that this type of service can, you know, off, first of all, start the discussion about quality control that I know I've never had. I, some people may have had them and some people don't need it. And, you know, that's wonderful. But I know that hasn't been my experience. And it certainly hasn't been for a lot of people that I've known. So one, to start the conversation, but um, also to just to add some efficiencies in this whole design development process. Okay, awesome. So you've made this really great and helpful distinction between quality assurance and quality control. And quality control is looking at the course that's there. But as as an instructional (laughs) designer, in particularly, perhaps, as someone coming in from the outside, as someone as a business owner, how do you take on when maybe the course that's there or the course that they want you to make is not not the right solution? So one thing that has been an, an issue when I started talking about this service to the my instructional designer colleagues, the first thing they thought, oh, you're going to tell people whether or not their class is good. And to them, that's what quality meant, Mm -hmm. that it was a quality class. Again, because a lot of us don't have conversations about, you know, the missing words and the things and the missing clicks. And there was a part of me that wanted to go in that direction, but I felt no, because I don't, we would never have enough context to tell you whether or not this class is effective. Mm -hmm. First of all, is only going to be as effective as the support that it's getting. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are courses that are complete. Um, I heard the phrase instructional homicide, you know, <laughs> before that are problematic, obviously. <laughs> but many, nine times out of 10, it's a solution 
that I can assume the designer did the best they possibly could because I don't know what their constraints are. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't want to introduce, and I think timing is important. I definitely don't want to introduce at the end of the beta stage Mm -hmm. that this course is not meeting objectives. And that's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. There's no way that I want to come in and say something like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to make sure that we really sort of are are controlling that. And we, the reviewers have the ability to make recommendations, but nothing about structure or anything like that. So we have to be really sort of careful around that. Now in my main job as a consultant when, and I, many times I've been in that situation where I do get questions about a course that exists and it's pretty far down the line. And there, and I I still don't want to introduce all of these questions about whether or not this course is working and anyone's going to learn from it because I still probably don't have enough context. But what I do is I try to, and what I do often find does help is I think a lot of times there's a there's a skill gap sometimes, but there is also this disconnect between the course and what the learner is going to experience. So I have them walk me through. So walk me through the experience that you think the learner is going to have with this. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of introduce questions that way. And sometimes it may lead to adding other types of support. It may be dividing this course up into different modules, but I'm I'm very careful to make sure that I'm not introducing. I mean, they hired me to help, not to come and uproot everything else. Mm-hmm. Now, have I run into that? I certainly have with other uh, other consultants who just come in and are like, "This is garbage," <laughs> and what. <laughs> And and want to change a lot. And that's great if you have an idea and if you have a strategy. And it's just, it's not often that you can do something that's effective like that. So I think what I do is I, I try to come up with ways that we can mitigate any problems that could arise in a learner experience. And then I try to slip in. And next time, <laughs> and what have we learned from this? Right. So, so the next course, you know, perhaps can be can be better. But yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So here's, here's another question. Do you, so you, you get, you get people to review and test and break the courses that are just, you know, other instructional designers and just, you know, people who are, who are coming at it, who aren't necessarily in the target audience. Do you, do you feel like that's, Mm -hmm. that's important or, or a handicap in any way with the service you offer? And that is why that distinction of, of those two types of reviews are important. Mm-hmm. That experience of you coming in as a, as a brand new person and just intuitively trying to walk through a course has a lot of value, I believe, that mm-hmm. you haven't. Because, for example, my the courses that I've created, I can imagine that the learners over time, if I've created multiple courses for them, I've sort of subconsciously trained them how to take my courses because they have a similar style. They have a similar, but having someone brand new come in and not, that's important. So people have brought up, what if it's medical? What if the, what what does, what is the content? What role does the content play Mm. in these reviews? And I think that there are times when that is that is valuable. That is true. But this person is not trying to learn from this. What they're trying to say is, if I drag and drop this over and nothing happens, 
what am I expecting to happen? What is what is what am I anticipating happening? And that's all you can really report on. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to say, well, that, you know, just for them to say, well, I'm a doctor and, you know, kidneys don't go there. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, a challenge to to do something like that. But we just try to focus on the experience of what's right in front of us. And if the course is trying to, to tell us to do something or not telling us to do something, is the course reacting in a way that we anticipated is it encouraging us to act in a way that is logical and you know does it does it function the way intuitively the way we expect it to Mm -hmm. I think sometimes content can play a role in that type of review but I think it's probably more valuable that you have someone who is outside of that experience and seeing whether or not a person can navigate this I think there is value in someone who is outside of that experience, um, experiencing something for the first time to make sure that the path is is clear mm-hmm. that you're setting out. Yeah. So I, I love that you you made this really targeted and laser focused. Um, and I, I think that, that that's definitely something that the rest of us can learn from is thinking about these mm-hmm. different kinds of reviews <laughs> and the different kinds of, of quality checks that you can do. So that's that is really helpful. And those are great definitions. So, and this this may or may not apply, but I, it's something that I've been thinking about lately. One of the debates that are, that is playing out um, in my workplace is this idea of working with the SME and asking for input versus asking for approval. And the rub, and the, this goes back to our talk about working iteratively and working in an agile way, the rub is that sometimes when you ask for approval or let the SME have um, a final say sort of in what you ship, um, you can get yourself into that that situation where you never ship or you ship really, really slowly. And so how how do you tackle that? Well, I've had this discussion several times and this is at the end of the day, to be honest, the course belongs to the people, (laughs) you know, it belongs to them. It's not my course. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, you know, I'm not the target for this. So it's, well, I'd love to always sort of conclude, well, I'm, you know, I'm the person who focuses on instructional design and I, and so, you know, I'm not going to ask for them for their permission. Mm -hmm. Their input is their input. And we say this and we pay a lot of lip service to it, but when when it when it really comes down to it, they do have the ability to trump what is going out. Mm-hmm. And you do not, and I think probably the biggest issue is that those people who are involved, you need their support. Mm-hmm. And they have no problem, some have no problem reminding people, well, I didn't want that to be in there, but it was in there. And they were, you know, so they, you lose their support and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So finding ways to keep their support and at the same time, your ground as far as what you think should occur, I think is important. Where that all lies, I really believe is first of upfront, it's, it's the relationship that you have with that person. I have found that if they trust you, and I don't say that they often do, but the ones that trust you, once you earn their trust over time, they they will go along. I haven't had anyone dig their heels in the sand to the extent where, you know, they've just felt like, you know, this interaction or this thing. And I just was like, no, this is going to stay. Sometimes as an outside consultant, when I'm working with other L&D groups, 
you have that a little bit. I mean, we've all interpreted every theory to interpret that theory. Mm -hmm. And we all think, you know, it's the right way to interpret it. So when you have someone else from that same space coming from the outside, sometimes you can get a little bit of a challenge there, Mm -hmm. challenge of will sometimes. And so I'm aware of that, especially when I'm working with L&D groups. So I try to start that relationship very, very early on, because I do think it's a matter of trust. You know, so I don't really draw the I think I go in with the idea that you're my, we're partners in this. And I think when I was internal, I felt like everybody was my boss. Mm-hmm. And I really sort of stepped back a little bit when that was occurring. And when I first went external, I felt like I had the same mentality for a little while. And when I made the decision, no, these people are not your boss. Yes, they write my check, but they're not your <laughs> boss they are your partner. You have a similar goal. You have the same goal. Once I changed my mentality, I felt the way I communicated was differently. The way I worked with people was very differently. And I didn't see it as this sort of bad, like we're all, we all have the same goal here and you have this level of input. I have this level of input. And once that relationship is is set, I haven't had much of that, much of a problem with that. Mm. But internally, that was difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have to say, um, sometimes I wish, I think if I went internally now, would I, would I feel the same way? I don't know. But yeah, seeing, ev- seeing ev- each, everyone seeing each other as a partner, I think helps a great deal. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, Hadia, here's my last question, but it's, uh, it's very, very important. Could you let us know where people can catch up with you? Well, there's my website, um, Focus Learning Solutions. I am in Chicago. And um, if you go there, you'd be able to find my email address. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, If you would like to learn more about this service that I'm offering, it's called Fresh Eye Reviews. It's fresheyereviews.com. You can check out that website for more information about um, what we're doing over there. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kristen. You know, I was genuinely struck by the way Hadia articulated the differences between quality control and quality assurance. As I said in the conversation, I've really only been one place so far that has had a genuinely good process for both of those. Storyboards and prototypes, or just content in general, was shared with stakeholders at regular intervals, And then we had alpha and beta tests that were focused on trying to break the course and figure out any issues there. But I haven't had that again. So I was really interested in her take on that. I was also interested in her take on collaborative review tools, that they work when used, but most folks don't use them. And so you end up defaulting back to a spreadsheet or some other kind of document. I also really love that she brought up good quality control as both focusing on the course you have in front of you, so it's not the time to try and drastically rewrite or reorganize things, and really trying to break the experience. I think that's so important because, as she mentioned, so many people, when we ask them to be testers, just go next, 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 without really surfacing any potential bugs. Quality control as a solution only works when we understand what it's actually meant to do. Thanks so much for listening, folks. Please do check out Hadia at FocusLearningSolutions.com and her new venture at FreshEyeReviews.com. 
And you can reach out to her on Twitter at Focus underscore LS. As always, you can also reach out to me. I'm at AnthChris. Or you can shoot me an email, Kristen at DearInstructionalDesigner.com. If you have a little more time, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show and lets me know how I'm doing. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks again and take care.